It's a big week when RHAP is on the road in Chicago. Check out my live show from Chicago. That's going to be up on Thursday, Wednesday night. Shannon Gus is going to be live with you with Kelly Wentworth after Survivor. And we preview the Dondi finale with Dealer No Deal Island host Joe Manganiello all right here on RHAP. We know reality TV. everyone. I'm Sarah Carradine, podcasting from unceded Gadigal land. I'm Mari Forth. And this is Crime Scene, the true crime review podcast where we get to the heart of how true crime stories are told. You can get this fine program along with all the fantastic reality TV content by subscribing to robhasawebsite.com slash rahapupsfeed. That's R-H-A-P-U-P-S feed. We'd love it if you would subscribe specifically to our feed as well. Please go to robhasawebsite.com slash crime feed and you'll get your true crime on Tuesdays. If you've already subscribed, thank you very much. Sarah, you have some true crime news for us today? Yes. So closing arguments were heard against Hillsong founder Brian Houston. Last week, you'll remember we covered the Hillsong documentary a couple of weeks ago with Mark Blankenship. So the Crown prosecutor contended that Houston is a liar and that he deliberately covered up sexual abuse allegations against his father, Frank, and including <laughs> obfuscating the, the crimes, calling them serious moral failings rather than actually naming them. Uh, the defence countered that Houston was protecting the adult survivor who had asked that the police not be notified, and that's a statement the survivor disagrees with. So the verdict will be handed down on August 16th. We'll continue to follow up on that case. Um, Mm -hmm. Sarah, what did we watch this week? We watched American Pain on Max. It's a documentary feature directed by Darren Foster. And taking this journey to South Florida with us is psychologist and brain injury rehab scientist, someone who would never park her private jet in her driveway, Dr. Amanda Rabinowitz. Amanda, Mm. welcome to the scene. Oh, thank you so, so much for having me. I'm really, really excited to make my crime scene debut. I'm arriving in uh, in style here with my um, with my giant yellow truck or whatever. But, <laughs> um, no, this, I, I, I'm really happy to be on here to talk about uh, American Pain. This was a really interesting documentary that I think shed Mm -hmm. some light on a dimension of the opioid crisis that I did not know a lot about. Yeah. Okay. We ask all our first time guests, uh, what is your true crime origin story? So how did you get into true crime? I mean, are you into true crime? Do you like it? So I'd say that I dabble in true crime. I'm definitely not a true crime lover, but I have my genres like within my subgenres within true crime that I am more interested in. So, you know, I was, I got hooked on Serial when that came out. I thought the storytelling was excellent. I was really compelled by, you know, that protagonist and, and, and understanding 
what that story illuminated about the justice system, which is, you know, one thing that I really look for in certain types of true crime is like, does this tell us something about the criminal justice system that we can learn mm. from? Um, you know, but, and, and there have been a number of other, you know, very, very excellent true crime documentaries. The Jinx, you know, blew me away. I thought mm-hmm. that was fantastic. But like, I definitely draw a line like for the true crime that is a little bit more gory. I sort of mm-hmm. break true crime into different categories in my head. There's the oh, look at this monster genre where it just tells mm-hmm. you the story about like somebody who's who's committed despicable acts. And and I don't know, like I, I think that that storytelling has value to the extent that we learn, you know, something about the limits of, you know, human character, which I think can mm. be interesting. But like, mm-hmm. I don't need to hear that story over and over, over and over, over again. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Welcome to our world. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but the kind of true crime stories that I enjoy are really, um, I like kind of a fun, interesting heist, you know, like something oh, like mm-hmm. the Gardner Museum heist, where you just kind of, your yes. brain gets wrapped up in like, how did they do it? Um, you know, that can be kind of fun and interesting. But the true crime stories that I think I gravitate towards the most, which is why I want to come in and cover American Pain, is like when we learn something about how the system works and, and especially how the system fails, because I think that mm. that is where as citizens, like we should understand that about our criminal justice system or about, you know, in the case of American pain, medical system, capitalism, all of this, because mm-hmm. I think it makes us more informed citizens where we can like participate in our society and hopefully change our voting behaviors or our civil engagement or our purchasing behaviors. So that's the type of true crime that I think is most appealing to me. Oh, mm-hmm. Well yes, said. it's not not enough fun heists. Everyone wants to cover fun heists. More and fun heists. Harry and I yes. in the trenches talking about, you know, death and all of that. Yeah. <laughs> so let's right. let's hop in and get to the crime and we'll talk about the documentary in more detail. So twins Chris and Jeff George ran pain clinics in Florida, which contributed to the opioid crisis in America, arguably. These pain clinics are also called pill mills and are responsible for distributing large quantities of pharmaceutical drugs. I wasn't familiar with the phrase, so that's one thing the documentary taught me. Chris was the owner of the largest network of pain clinics in Florida between February 2008 and March 2010. That's when he was rampaging down there. As FBI agent Kurt McKenzie says in the documentary, they have real doctors, they have real licenses, they have real DEA control numbers, and what looks like a real clinic, where is the crime? Committing fraud is just understanding the system and taking advantage of its weakness to commit a crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2011, after a 14-month operation by FBI, DEA, IRS, and the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office, the brothers, along with their associates, were arrested. Chris and Jeff, their mother Denise, Chris's wife Diana, and 13 physicians and 15 other associates were variously charged under the RICO Act. Organised crime, conspiracy, money laundering, illegal distribution of drugs, and conspiracy to commit fraud on the internet and via mail order business. Diana and Denise were both sentenced to four and a half years. Chris was sentenced to 17 and a half years. Jeff was sentenced to 20 years in prison because they added in a drug overdose murder. 
In February 2022, George was released from federal prison. And I'd like to depart from my usual format by quoting rather extensively from his interview at the end of the documentary after his mm. release. Yep. He says, I definitely wish people didn't die from the medication. I don't know why certain people did die, but in the end, it's their responsibility. They're responsible for themselves. I'm not. They said they were in pain to my doctors. They got an MRI showing they were in pain. The doctors gave them the medication. Then what they did with that was out of my hands. Addiction in this country has always been there. So I don't think we actually created more addicts. They were already here. They just had an easier way to get their drugs and a safer way. I can't say that I'm responsible for it. They're responsible for causing the problem in the country. They're the ones that came here. They're the ones that did this. The patients are the one who caused whatever problems we have. I owned a business, but I didn't prescribe one pill. 14 and a half years in prison, hmm. and uh, he certainly reflected on his responsibilities. <laughs> uh, Dr. Amanda, can I just start with you and brains and addiction before we come into the documentary? One of the statements that Chris has there is that, you know, addiction is always there. What what can you tell us about the brain and addiction disorder, as I believe it's mm. now called? Yeah. So addiction is something that and, you know, substance use disorders um, is something where our understanding in the science has been, you know, evolving. We understand that addictive substances have very strong effects on the brain, on our brain chemistry, essentially what they do what um, these exogenous uh, addictive habit forming uh, agents can do is hijack the brain's natural reward system. So it's really important that we have a reward system in our brain. It makes us seek out important things that we need, like food, like uh, reproductive partners. Um, it, it's, it's that thing that gives you that shot of good feeling when you have a candy you really like or good meal or even, you know, a rewarding conversation with friends. But what happens with a lot of habit forming substances is they sort of supercharge that system. And it's uh, in the brain. The chemistry behind that is, um, you know, this is the ventral tegmental area sort of deep within the midbrain close to where our emotion processing centers are. If you know the oh. limbic system right around in that mesolimbic area is the nucleus accumbens, which is the part of the brain where our dopamine circuits are um, sort of originate. And what drugs like cocaine, what opioids do is they sort of tap right in and they give you a dose of that dopamine shot that's far, far overpowers anything that we would encounter in our normal rewarding environment, right? So it's extremely powerful. We know when animals under laboratory circumstances are given addictive chemicals like cocaine um, or like opioids, what they will do is they will self-administer to the point of starvation because they continue to choose drug over food. When Chris says that there have always been addicts in this country, right, that um, that there always will be, you know, there it, 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 cre it suggests this kind of model that addiction is something that like lives within the individual, right, that there are some mm -hmm. individuals that are just wired to 
seek out these experiences and cause themselves harm. And there certainly are individual differences in the extent to which people are susceptible to whether it's uh, substance abuse or other types of uh, habits. Like, well, we talk about gambling addiction. We talk about other types of addiction, right? There's, um, there's, there, there are individual differences in the extent to which people will seek out those experiences. But we know that there are some substances, there are some compounds that are so potent and so powerful, right? That they lower that they that they that they overwhelm that threshold even in people who might not have that predisposition. So mm -hmm. the question is addiction is not something that exists in an individual. It is an interaction between an individual and their environment and we know that. There's lots and lots of research to show that the environment that you are placed in the types of experiences that you have access to shape you and they change your brain. And so doing something like flooding our streets with a very highly, highly addictive compound is going to affect people. It's going to change their brains. It's going to have an impact and it's going to create a problem that would not have been there Otherwise, um, you know, pain medications do not directly activate the dopamine pathway like cocaine does. What they do is they are primarily analgesics first, right? That means that they mm -hmm. are pain relievers and there is an important pain management is an important medical problem, but they are very, very tightly linked with that dopaminergic pathway. And there were changes in uh, narcotic pain medication, specifically with the development of oxycodone that allowed uh, these pills to deliver higher, higher levels of opioid than morphine, than other drugs that had been on the market. And in a sustained way, that made this a recipe for disaster when it came to addiction. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Thank you for explaining that, Dr. Amanda. It's um, breathtaking. Yeah. Mari, let's uh, hear your overall thoughts on the, on the documentary. Uh, mm -hmm. And also, as we all know, you're from science as well. Uh, mm -hmm. Anything you can give us to illuminate? My, my, first thought process of watching this documentary it wasn't what i thought it was going to be like I, I didn't i didn't know about this case at all um I, I i didn't i didn't connect the dots i was really thinking that this was gonna be linked to the um current like fentanyl overdoses and stuff mm -hmm. like that and we can we can talk about how this kind of indirectly links to mm -hmm. what's happening right now with the fentanyl overdoses but I found it very interesting. The subject matter was very interesting. Thank God it's not as dark as we've been covering in these past yes. weeks and in the weeks to come. Um, but I also thought the, the the parts, you know, throughout the the feature, we we get mo most of the feature is from not the criminal's point of view, but they're talking about the enterprise. They're talking about the fraud that's being committed. They're t telling us about the operation, which is very eye-opening and stuff. But near the end, we get the impact. You know what I'm saying? We get the impact of finding out that like close to maybe 10% of their patients end up dead due to overdose or due to or car accidents. And then we get the section to me that was, that really hit home for me was all of the babies that were flooding the neonatal NICU 
who were addicted to opioids and opiates because their mothers, you know, couldn't kick the habit while they were pregnant. And that made me so entirely sad. I kind of wanted to know a little bit more, but, you know, I, I get it. You know, we I like that we did have a registered nurse there talking about how, like, she said her her hospital director didn't want to put down that, like, all these babies were coming in addicted to opioids. And she's like, every hospital around here has multiple babies coming in for, mm-hmm. for opioids. And, and it, it's one of those things that people don't necessarily automatically think about when they think about the opioid crisis and how this can permanently affect some of these babies. You can never, there's no, correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Amanda, but there's no widely held known cause and effect of what can happen here. Like you can't say, oh, all these babies were born addicted to opioids. So this is going to happen to them. You just don't know. It's up to the individual baby and, and it could be very catastrophic. Or some of them can, you know, end up being as close to quote unquote normal as possible, but yeah. you just don't know. It, it's a risk that, you know, these babies didn't ask for. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not the way you want to. I mean, you think about as a new parent, all of the things you do, you try to do these things to maximize your child's development. It's not the mm-hmm. best way to start life. And like you said, Mar, right. you're absolutely right. There's, you know. First of all, it's suffering, right? They're born and then they withdraw and that's suffering in a newborn baby. And then and then there can be these long-term effects, even though there's mm-hmm. going to be a big range of outcomes. So mm-hmm. it's really, I mean, it's really tragic and it's so pervasive. And I thought that it was really illuminating because I had heard the term pill mill before, but I did mm-hmm. not know the extent to which like, this was really, I mean, they talk about they got it down to a science. They had it as a, um, as an assembly line. Doctors were seeing patients between 45 minutes and three minutes per patient. Yeah. They didn't even have time to open a cash register. They would just shovel the money directly into garbage bags. And then you see the people running this and it's these, you know, people with felony histories who have no medical background whatsoever running a business like a frat house right with all of their friends mm-hmm. and hiring women off of Craigslist based on their appearance and having fridges full of beer in there taking shots of Patron and in the meantime they're basically flooding the streets with this medicine like thinking about all the people that were implicated in this from that former DEA agent, um, was it Lou Fisher, who I wanted to like jump into the screen and just strangle? <laughs> like all of these people who, the doctors who, everybody knows that what they're doing is wrong, right? But they're making money and they're just doing the, you know, the the, the CYA mentality. As long as I'm documenting and I'm covering mm-hmm. my own butt, then mm-hmm. I don't care what impact this has. And the lack of oversight and how easy it was to create this billion upon billion upon billion of dollar drug industry is just, it's just stunning. It's just such an epic failure on so many levels. And legal, like basically legal. <laughs> they had to find things to charge them with because all the licenses are there. They're seeing the patients for, as you say, between three, four minutes, get it down if you can. The, one of the doctors proudly said he'd seen 140 patients in one day uh, at $50 a pop from the George twins. Mm-hmm. Mary, were you, as I mean, I was, am I naive to have been surprised by the uh, pharmaceutical distributors who they say 
the the amount of pills that were going down to this one small area in Florida should have mm-hmm. alerted them. Were you surprised? <laughs> am, I, am I naive? No, I, I was surprised and yet unsurprised because this, mm-hmm. this is America. Money talks louder than anything. You know what I'm saying? And like Dr. Amanda said, as long as you CYA, cover your ass, nobody's asking questions. It was not in Big Pharma's interest to ask questions. They're like, oh, your paperwork's in order. You're requesting how many pills a week to keep up with your patient load? Oh, that seems like a lot, but you know, that order keeps coming every week and it gets bigger and bigger. You know, we 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 learned that their order got bigger and bigger as as the years went on. They don't care. They don't they don't care. So I I wasn't surprised. I did not know this, but I was like, yeah, that's that sounds about right. <laughs> Yeah, nobody's responsible, right, according to Chris mm-hmm. George. The talking heads I thought were very interesting. You you mentioned Lou Fisher, who's an interesting character, ex-DEA agent, now kind of consultant to the drug dealers, sort of. <laughs> he covers ECCYA very, very mm-hmm. much. Oh, I'd, I'd tell them if, uh, if uh, you know, not to supply, if I thought not to supply. Who else stuck out to you, Murray? I'll go to you with the talking mm-hmm. heads because there was certainly a bouquet of people like obviously we wrote down all the names I'm sure you did too because we're so used to it now yeah we have seldom seen so many and yet I thought it was very clear who everybody was yeah uh Derek Nolan I mean you gotta you gotta go with Derek uh uh basically the right hand man to to Chris George he it took me a while to realize that he he was talking to us from uh, as a talking head straight to camera, but I think he was also talking to us via prison as well. Did I get that right? Yeah. Right. Uh, Over recorded phone calls. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Derek Nolan was like, I guess the enforcer of the job. He was the one, he was Chris's right hand man in his uh, pain clinics. And he would just talk. I loved how he talked about the inner workings and how, you know, he would, people would come and they, they'd have to wait in line. And he was like, well, if you give me $200, you can skip the line. You know, Derek gave us a lot of insight on, uh, on uh, Peter, their MRI, I, not guru, MRI, like yeah, side so hustler. They, that was, I mean, this was fascinating. They had an MRI that was operating in the parking lot in the back of a strip club <laughs> where, you know, that was their guy to go to where you'd send them over and then get a read on the MRI. That was just like, oh yeah, you're really messed up. You need, mm-hmm. so, so this was their, this was their, like their CYA strategy. They had a crooked MRI guy mm-hmm. who was who was giving the reports so we're justifying the prescription mm-hmm. of the pain meds yeah and if you said the wrong thing at one click because he had a number of clinics chris mm-hmm. george if you said the wrong thing at one at one and in fact someone wears a wire and goes in and mistakenly the undercover cop mistakenly says that he drinks you know a couple of beers a day mm-hmm. and the doctor puts his pen down and says well i can't prescribe these to you let me just get chris and chris sends him off to one of his other clinics run by his wife and says I'll say Chris sent you and basically don't say you drink Mm -hmm. so it was really interesting that within the operation you still had to say the right like you had to correctly present yourself you had to Mm -hmm. have a proper MRI that had been reviewed by a medical person who apparently saw bulging discs discs, everywhere uh, everywhere. (laughs) you had some bulging discs in your elbow 
it was it was like it was like schmigadoon. Everybody had to pick, play their part, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody, all the worlds of charade. You know, you had to you had to wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Oh, doctor, my elbow really, really hurts. You know what I'm saying? I hurt. I hit it on the side of something. And it really hurts. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, well, go get an MRI so we can just fact check this. Oh God, look at that! This MRI says that there's something wrong with your your elbow, and then now I get. A hundred something pills prescribed to you, yes, or two hundred and forty in your first visit. Like, yes, <laughs> it was. It was a very tightly run ship. I, I, I will say that. Yes, well, Derek um, was not above keeping everybody in line. Um, mm-hmm. He talks about so these uh, uh, women who work the cash and uh, you know the front of house. Eventually, he was charging them to come to work because they were pocketing and skimming so much cash. So he was charging them $200 a day to come to work, which they happily paid because they were making four or five times that, just popping it in their pocket. Incredible. (laughs) Amanda, who of these talking heads really struck you? Well, I mean, I I, I thought that there were a lot of really interesting characters in this world that we got Mm -hmm. to know. Um, Diana, Chris's wife, um, was really, really... (laughs) <laughs> interesting um in terms of you know i obviously this is a i think a an ex-wife at this point mm-hmm. but she sort of oh, yes. illuminates how she got you know wrapped up in this relationship with this big bodybuilding guy who had these nice cars and boats and you know then all oh well, i guess he's a twin and then all of a sudden these pain clinics um, he starts this business and they're doing really well, expanding so rapidly. She gets her own pain clinic to oversee. And part of the motivation for this is apparently he needs to get her out of the office because he's pursuing uh, extramarital oh. affairs with some of the women that work there. Um, she does a really good, I'm doing air quotes, good job with her <laughs> own pain clinic, the rapid expansion to the point where they end up in this giant bank building with 160 parking spaces. Um, it's wild. And I thought that the really, the interesting turn with her is at the end, you know, we find out that in this moment when the cops finally come, when the, when the feds come and raid and they have Diana, she lies to him about being shown pictures of him in compromising (laughs) positions with other women because she sort of sadistically wants to kick him when he's down, Um, really adding that other layer to her character that I didn't think that we were going to get. Yes, she's the sort of, I thought she was going to be loyal to the end. But no, Mm -hmm. no, I think she, you know, smart woman, Mm-hmm. Just, you know, drawn in. I, I I found her very interesting. I loved John Frisky, mm-hmm. not just because he's called John Frisky. Mm-hmm. He was the owner of the Starkets Tech Computers just uh, along the road from the pill mills. They needed a computer guy and so they got him in. The FBI and the DIA immediately thought, oh, you'd be good. So he was constantly saying, oh, yes, your hard drives, are, I have to come in and swap out your hard drives. Yeah. So he was working undercover. Such a brave thing to do because these are big, they're big men, all of them, mm-hmm. and and the the simmering violence is is just there in their size. The, the mm-hmm. George brothers themselves are on steroids, mm-hmm. uh, and that idea that if you put a foot wrong, I mean, what a brave man he looks like, you know, 
somebody's dead. Yeah, he and he and, and he was, fact, he was and he had been. Dead. Yeah, no, yes. he was really the only the only one to kind of stand up and whistleblow at this. Even the even the law enforcement people that were talking heads that they had interviewed who were, you know, obviously watching this and monitoring this and concerned. And there's also some um, some journalists who they talked to. But John Frisk was really the only person who took initiative and was able to actually get some information. So he's really the hero of the story. And he had a really great line and I wrote it down. So I want to look for it when he says that it's really it's all of our responsibility to mm-hmm. do this. Like, you know, and, and it's such a stark contrast between, um, you know, his testimony where he says, you know, he believes that it was, you know, it was our responsibility to make sure that this doesn't happen. You got to put these people out of business. It's everyone's job. That's what I believe is, is what he says. But there were so many people, doctors who said, you know, I don't know if this is legal. But this is how I can justify it to myself, right? There were doctors mm-hmm. who were saying that there was um, the Lou Fisher for the the XDEA mm-hmm. um, person who very clearly thought, well, well, like you know, yeah, obviously this is fishy, but it's all sort of technically colored within the line. So I just turn a blind eye at it. It was really uh, refreshing to see that there was one person who was actually willing to stand up and say, you know, I'm not just going to to look the other way while this happens. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. as, as Murray says, the the documentary start, starts out jaunty. There's some, some jaunty music. Mm-hmm. We get the boys growing up and, of course, their boys will be boys committing the petty crimes, all of which they get away with. And then we go through the kind of fascinating business side of it, like how does the business run? And I think that was very well laid out. And then there's this turn towards the end when we start hearing about the deaths. And I thought, oh, God, I thought we were finished with deaths. You know, terrible car accidents. They had some crime scene photos, perfectly blurred. There's nothing to worry about. Yep. But one of them, there's a, a Christmas tree in the foreground and and you can see that there's a, a person who has died in the background and you just go, this is so, it's so wrenching. And then we finally find out that John Frisky's son himself had, had been in a genuine accident, had been prescribed these, these pain, this pain medication, became addicted and, and died. Uh, we speak to some Kentucky drug dealers Mm-hmm. Who sort of a marvelous family knows best, but uh, Whitney, the young woman, says that her when her eighteen month old a baby overdosed on pills mm. and was taken away from her, that was the turning point for her. Mari, yeah, yeah, exactly. I I thought the documentary definitely did a very good job. It's it comes in, it's light, it's airy, and it and it kind of like fools you into like every every type of drug. You know, we 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 watch a lot of their drug culture. I I did a whole season on snowfall and stuff like that. It kind of lures you into the like, see, it's just business. See, it's just people making money. Look how fun making money is. And then it, by the end of it, it's like, no, but here are the real consequences. This is what the face of addiction looks like, you know. Um, all of these people dead. They also had recorded conversations because uh, when the undercover officer was able to see that Chris used his personal phone to call Diana to get him to go to the other thing, they wiretapped his phone. So they had tapes between him and his associates 
committing, <laughs> talking about criminal acts on his phone. And one of the things was um, not a criminal act, but uh, his associate, I think this was Derek at the time, told him like, hey, did you hear about some of the patients from our clinic were in a really bad car, uh, train accident because they try to outrun a train because they were high out of their minds. And as we're hearing the audio conversation, we're seeing pictures from the crime scene. And it was, it was, it was very good storytelling by the directors there as we're seeing like, again, the consequences of the actions that the George brothers are taking and then hearing, oh, how dumb do you have to be to get ran over by a train? Uh, it's their fault. And that that being it. So, I mean, I think this documentary truly, truly does show you the the, the impact. And the, the family from Kentucky was, I, I really liked their contribution to this, this documentary because I felt like it, it really gave us the scope of how big the operation was because this wasn't just in Florida. Like he, there are people from Kentucky. They said Ohio, as far as like Pittsburgh, I think driving to all the way to Florida to get their pills and, and shipping people there. Like almost like it was a casino bus. They would, mm-hmm. they would fill people with buses to come and stand in line to get their hundred or something. They wore the, they wore the church t-shirt so that nobody would suspect them. They had a bus full of people wearing church t-shirts to go and collect these pills to supply yep. these secondary and tertiary markets that comprise yes. like whole towns whole Whole towns of people Mm -hmm. that were supplied pills by a few drug runners making these occasional trips to florida Florida. like Mm -hmm. really staggering yeah george brothers were wholesale drug dealers they were distributors they were the plug they were the people that the the lower level dealers or you know the mid-level dealers were get were getting their drugs from to then distribute it was i i that scope was something i was not expecting Yeah, I mean, I think the use of this family, Whitney Red and their mother, Pat, Pat, who's very happy with her her role as a drug dealer, but uh, what they give us is they're they're in Kentucky. uh, I can't think of how long the the drive was, many hours. Um, 16, I want to say. 16, yes. Yes, that sounds right. So it's worth it. Two and a half half in Kentucky, two in Tennessee, six in Georgia, eight in Florida. Wow. So 8.18. And return. And return. So it's worth it for them to do that. Uh, Whitney says sometimes a couple of times a week. So you're paying for petrol, like leaving aside, <laughs> you're paying for petrol. You're paying for the pills uh, because they certainly were coming, uh, you know, over the counter there at the at the pill mills, driving back and then selling them on. You've got to think that that is so lucrative. It's lucrative for other Kentucky people who started to catch on to hire a bus to give to pay people a hundred dollars to go to the to the clinic. Your clinic visit costs fifty dollars or two hundred if you want to jump the line, mm-hmm. and then your pills cost money. So they're paying for all of that, taking them all back to Kentucky, and still making a profit. It's mm-hmm. the the figures were were extraordinary. Yeah, it just shows you how I mean how absolutely hypnotic this um, these sums of money were for people like I one of the talking heads that really struck me was uh this Nicholas Alex Gonzalez who talks about how he was he had a barber shop and that he would like supplement his barber shop income by selling drugs here and there and then once he got hooked up with 
the Oxycontin, he was making five to $6,000 a day in cash. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, well, you know, why, why even, you know, why continue with this legitimate business anymore? And it was so much money. Um, he was actually strike. He struck me because he was one of the only people involved in the drug dealing operation who showed remorse by the mm-hmm. end of the documentary, <laughs> yeah. who actually said, yeah. yes, like, we were all, we were all awful. Like we were all Mm -hmm. scumbags. I was a scumbag when I did that. But you know, the other, I think that there's, um, Zach Rose, there's, there's Derek, um, why Zach, I don't remember Derek's love, but then, um, and, and the George brothers, I just seem to be utterly unremorseful, like not even Mm -hmm. in the slightest because they saw a business opportunity and they capitalized it and they had absolutely no regard for the consequences. Yes. I mean, we don't normally like hearing from the criminals, but I thought hearing uh, Chris in particular's recorded phone calls and the coldness Mm -hmm. of him and then the interview with him was actually fascinating. We only hear from Jeff briefly from prison. He says, we created a new tourism. We were basically like the Disneyland of pain clinics and also, of course, the addicts, zombies, which I think, well, you know, you yeah. made them. So it, I thought that was interesting and they had so many recorded phone calls once the DEA and the FBI got there you know, wiretaps in. It was 14 months they were recording them. They were very, as we say, stay stupid criminals. They were speaking completely openly on their mobile, on their own mobile phones <laughs> about their enterprise. Yeah. Love it. You love it when they, they mess up like that, right? They weren't, they weren't like these genius masterminds. Like they were competent mm-hmm. in certain ways. I think especially Chris was sort of a a businessman, mm-hmm. but it's not like they, it's not like they were these geniuses who were evading the law at every turn. Right. When, you know, at one point there's the, um, I think he's from the DEA or the sheriff's office and the interviewer, the documentarian asks, um, why do you think the regulations in Florida we're so oh. lax. Like Florida doesn't have a database, right? Where you can find out if somebody's filling the same prescription in different places. Florida doesn't have any of these protections. And he just sort of says, well, you know, uh, I'm going to pass on that one. That's politics. And I don't want to talk about it. The law allowed this to happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, very clearly, Florida knew what was happening, right? And could have put regulations in place that would have made Chris and Jeff's pursuits a lot more difficult, but they were enabled. They were enabled by the wholesalers. They were enabled by the pharmaceutical companies. They were enabled by the doctors. They were enabled by the the regulators. So I thought that Mm -hmm. that was really interesting that these are not, you know, these brilliant masterminds. Um, They, you know, there was a system that was set up that basically rolled out the red carpet and allowed somebody to do this. Dr. Amanda, um, I have a question for you. The DEA control numbers that the doctors are given, like, why would you, is that like putting their license on the line when, when you're like ordering, because I know for me, like I have a clinical, I have a clinical license and 
if say somebody were to open a lab and they said, hey, Mari, can we use your license to open a lab so that we can get regulation and we can get um, accredited and stuff like that? And if I say yes, and if they do something messed up, that falls back on on me and my license. Mm -hmm. Was there no consequences? I mean, I know the doctors got criminally charged, but what made them be like, okay, sure, I'll come in and is it just the money <laughs> like i think it's, I'm, I'm, i think it i think it i mean mari i think you answered your i think it's I know. <laughs> the money it's it's the money and i think it's like it's the whole i think that florida was a place that allowed this to happen the first dot the the way that the the george brothers got on to this whole business right was this uh dr overstreet Mm-hmm. who was the one I think that they originally their their introduction to this world was, yep. was steroids right because mm-hmm. they were steroid users and they wanted to supply and start to make money and then this doctor who we only see um because he's you know he passed away shortly after they met him but was the one who told him that pain medication is really where the money's at and I think that this regulation a lot of it is at the state level like as you know clinical licensure is something that is managed by state regulatory bodies so if you're in a state that is extremely permissive like florida is then i think that that breeds a type of attitude from these providers that's you know i can probably get away with this and most of them do it makes you wonder about you know chris and Jeff George, like, I thought that this was a fascinating exchange when they talked to his father at the end. And he says, well, you know, the five cent psychologist might say that they were <laughs> entitled and they were spoiled rich kids and they got away with everything. And then the, the interviewer asked, well, what do you think that that's it? And he just doesn't have anything to say. He's speechless because <laughs> yeah. I think it's like, you that's know, exactly this world it. and you look at a lot of these <laughs> doctors and they're white men, right, who are probably used to not having to face a lot of consequences. I think that Chris and Jeff George are really, of course, they eventually go to prison. But I mean, this is such a story of white privilege that they were able to amount, like they were able to build this empire. And like, even looking at what the consequences that they ultimately face, like, you know, Chris George is now a man like in his early mid forties is going to walk free and be back out on the streets and has, aspirations to start more businesses like mm. it's insane his, his new new girlfriend mm. Brittany's there very excited to pick him up at the jail looking yeah. quite a bit like a like a young diana did not like exactly. <laughs> yes yeah. yes all yeah. this white privilege they're them growing up rich like if if you if you haven't figured it out by now they were rich <laughs> their mm-hmm. dad was rich and they you know they got everything that they wanted and on top of that, oh, look, the Nazis showed up. Oh Was anybody surprised God, when the know. Nazi flag showed up in his oh. house? And not even just the Nazi flag in Chris's house, but like Nazi wall art that I'm not going to lie. I was like, this is some nicely done wall art. You know what I'm saying? Like it was like chiseled glass SS. Yeah. <laughs> and he has a tattoo. He has white supremacist has tattoos. Um. Yeah. I was like, oh wow. Yeah. That's a fancy piece of hatred right there. Uh- <laughs> it's it's fancy, it's rich. Their father's called John Paul George, which I thought was rather marvelous. Uh I'm not sure what happened to Ringo. Mm-hmm. But he initially seems like the jolly father, and later I came to have an enormous antipathy to him because mm-hmm. 
these boys, boys will be boys. They got into petty crime and bits and pieces here and there. Never, ever punished. They got a verbal warning and returned to the family home where where John's just like, oh, well, you know, that's just what they're like and they're really smart and they were rivals and it's sort of absolutely nothing to do with me. I thought you... Yeah, I mean, and like, let's, you know, let's spread the blame around with parenting here. I mean, you know, I feel I feel <laughs> yeah. bad for poor Denise. What do they call gangster granny is what one of, granny. The, one of the Kentucky uh, women calls her. But like she ends up go- going to jail, partially taking the fall. You know, we hear Chris on the phone with Diana saying you might have to take the blame for a lot of this because he doesn't want to get in trouble. Um but she, again, she comes and works in the clinics, right? Completely enables them. They're storing their money stash in her attic. Um, you know, these parents were, you know, just, oh, look at our look at our boys acting up, getting in trouble. Aren't they marvelous? Mm-hmm. And allowing them and enabling them at every turn. He has that one call, like the first time that his mother's name appears in the paper implicated with a drug-related death. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she says, oh, that's wonderful, kind of laughs it off. It's just it's it's disgusting that nobody ever stood up and said no to these guys. I mean, I found them to be the most loathable human beings I've come across in, in <laughs> quite, don't hold quite back. a time. Don't hold yep. back. Mm-hmm. Yes. So any more about this documentary before we get to our ratings, Mari? I definitely think we hit a lot. There were a lot of talking heads and I think it was done perfectly. I didn't feel like any of the talking heads were like out of place. And I think having the talking heads, having the recording. Yeah, I definitely liked it. Like this doc. Dr. Amanda, any final thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I think that this, this documentary did a good, a very good job of highlighting this piece of the, uh, the, the opioid epidemic, this part of the drug trade. And it did sort of zoom out a little bit to implicate the wholesalers and the pharmaceutical companies. I have to call out, you know, Purdue Pharma, who is the manufacturer, who is the creator of oxycodone. Um, the Sackler family, who owns Purdue for- Pharma, um, has uh, just settled for immunity to the tune of $6 billion. Um, yeah. So those people will never go to prison, even though there's lots of documentation to know, to show that they knew exactly what was going on and that they engaged in practices to maximize the addictive potential of their product. So I wish I do think that this that, you know, at the end, we have some talk from Derek who says, yeah, we should have gone to jail. But what about the pharmaceutical companies? What about the doctors? What about the wholesalers? What about everybody else who turned a blind eye or who got us in this situation? So I do wish the documentary might have highlighted that part a little bit more because I think it's a really important part of the story. There's a book called American Pain by John Temple, came out in 2015, if anyone's interested in reading that. The rights to make it into a film were sold at that time. You think this is a long time to get this film made. We were set, just a little bit behind the curtain, we were set to record our discussion on this over a month ago. American Pain was supposed to come out and suddenly it wasn't out. So I wonder if there this is pure speculation, mm. but when something appears on your streamer's list 
and then disappears. Mm-hmm. You think uh, there might have been some adjustments to be made because of legal uh, things. So I wonder, Amanda, if your question might be answered by interesting by that. I don't know. That's pure speculation. Mm-hmm. These documentaries have to scrupulously pass all their legals. So let's get to our ratings. Amanda, how many magnifying glasses are you going to rate American Pain out of a possible five? Out of a possible five, I will give this a a four. I think it's really successful. I like that. Um, I think it kept up a good pace throughout. There wasn't parts where I felt like there was a lull or where I felt like we were just kind of regurgitating information that we already heard. I feel like it it it, it felt informative and captivating throughout. I like that it didn't get so dark with i mean of course i know it's part of the story that there's so much death and devastation that's associated with this epidemic but um i i thought that the fact that the tone was a little bit less heavy made it more watchable while still effectively communicating the story but i think that it it falls short of being a five because like i said i think that there's parts of the stories that didn't get told and if anything you could argue that maybe it should have had a slightly more dour tone given how serious the subject matter is, but I would definitely recommend this. Thank you. And Mari, how many magnifying glasses are you going to give this documentary? I completely agree with Dr. Amanda. That that was my thoughts exactly. I was going to give it a four magnifying glasses. That, that is what I'm giving this property. I would definitely recommend watching it. It's such an easy watch. They really did a good job of ex- of telling us a little bit about the George brothers up front and then delving into the business and the ramifications and the scope of the business. And then finally everything that's happened and for them to like how they contributed to the opioid crisis. And one of the things that we didn't talk about, because like, like I was saying, I thought, I thought that what this was going to be is because of the, the hole that they left in, in like the, in their opioid market, these people pushed maybe half a billion pills or something over like a few years. They left those addicts when these people got taken away to jail, there were still plenty of people who were addicted to uh, opioids who were looking for other places to find the opioids. And unfortunately, this fed into the current like fentanyl crisis where um, fentanyl is being used and, and put into other so-called drugs. People think they're getting oxycodone. They're thinking they're getting cocaine or they're thinking that they're getting weed gummies. And instead, it's fentanyl at toxic levels, fatal levels. And people are now dying due to fentanyl poisonings nowadays. So it's like you you really don't understand the scope of how addictive this this medication was at first and then how the appearance of the market and even the eliminating of the market just com- can be completely catastrophic to a whole society of people. Um, so I think the documentary did a great job of explaining that. Like Dr. Amanda said, they could have done a little bit more when it came to Big Pharma. But other than that, definitely, definitely suggest this great documentary shout out to the director this was this was a good watch sarah how about you uh what would you rate american pain i'm gonna go slightly higher i'm gonna go 4.5 this is really well made just sort of zooming back from the content the style and structure and format of the documentary is so close to perfect it's a feature of uh, about what an hour 
44, something like that. Mm-hmm. Extensive use of the tapped phone calls, but we actually get to also read the text so we know where we are. I thought that was very well done. The selection mm-hmm. of the talking heads, even that large number is usually too many, but we knew who everybody was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Certainly character-wise we knew who they were. And I learned a great deal because I would have thought, well, how is this a business? How I mean, I understand the street dealer, you know, are you, are you holding? Yes, here we go, $10. Uh, not that I would have any, um, you know, experience of that. But the how is it a business and how was it millions and millions and millions of dollars? And I thought that was just so well told and it didn't ignore the death and devastation at the end. It didn't le- lean too heavily on it. And then we had one single story of a single death, which was John Frisky's son, that sort of stood for all the sons, all the daughters, all the all the people, all the children uh, of people that have that have died. So I thought that was very well done. Four and a half magnifying glasses. Amanda, what do you have to recommend to our listeners? Oh, um, well, thinking in the true crime vein, as I said, I'm not the biggest consumer of the true crime genre, but there is this delightful oddity that sort of sits at the intersection of true crime. And I don't even know what else, maybe reality TV, maybe Nathan for you. It's a pure bizarre delight that almost defies explanation. It's called Paul T. Goldman and it's streaming on Peacock. And I really, really highly recommend this bizarre uh this bizarre multi-part series limited series that focuses on the life of uh paul t goldman who stars as himself based on a book that he wrote and a screenplay he wrote um it's directed by jason walliner and i don't want to say too much about it because it's just it's just very very hard to describe and i don't want to spoil the fun but there's six episodes of this on Peacock. Um, It draws you in with his story of a crime that happened to him and it just evolves into so, so much more. Um, If you're a fan of the rehearsal or Nathan Fielder's work, there have been a lot of comparisons drawn to that and I definitely highly recommend it. Oh, wonderful. I'm looking forward to watching that myself. I'm going to plunge you, dear listener, into the fictional Mm -hmm. world of Pill Mill's and the so-called Dixie Mafia, if I'm allowed to say that. It's the fabulous series Claws, uh, and it debuted in 2017. Rashida Jones is the executive producer, and it stars the empress herself, Niecy Nash. Oh, I love her. It yeah. centers on five women who work at a nail salon called Nail Artisans of Manatee County in Florida, <laughs> and they wash cash for a pill mill called Sun Coast Rejuvenations. So I was very startled to see mm-hmm. in the documentary wow. that that is the name of the company that mm-hmm. ran American Pain. I don't know how they got away with that, but they did. <laughs> uh, the art direction of the costume design is absolutely incredible. The cast and the writing is so strong. It's fantastic. And despite it being a comedy, there's real peril because you know, main characters die. So mm-hmm. nobody other than Nisi, you imagine, mm-hmm. nobody is safe. So I realised that I'd actually learned quite a lot about the business from this fictional series when I watched American Pain. There are four seasons of Claws 
Ready to Binge, available on Stan in Australia and Hulu in the U.S. Yeah, thank you for recommending this, Sarah, because I did. I used to watch Claws. I watched Claws when it came out. I watched the first two seasons and then I I fell off. Um, But I didn't even put two and two together. And now I'm definitely going to have to go back and and rewatch and binge. Definitely. Enjoy Mm -hmm. At Crime Scene, we're eager to hear your feedback and suggestions for future episodes. You can follow Crime Scene on Twitter at Crime Scene RHAP, that's Scene S E E N, or email us at Crime Scene RHAP at gmail.com. We're also on TikTok at Crime.Scene and on Instagram and Facebook at Crime Scene Podcast. And please remember to subscribe to our feed by going to robhasawebsite.com slash crime feed. It really makes a big difference. Dr. Amanda, what have you got going on and where can the people find you? Well, the people can always find me on Twitter where I am at Dr. Amanda R. That's D-R Amanda R. And that is the best way to keep up with everything that I'm doing. Um, Right now, I am at Post Show Recaps covering Silo, which is the science fiction thriller on Apple TV Plus. I'm covering that alongside Mike Bloom. We are just gearing up for the finale. So that'll be exciting. Um, I, I recommend people check that out and uh, listen to Mike and I talk about it there. Um, the Severance Media Club is still getting together on post show recaps once a month to talk about various media in the broader Severance universe, still on the Apple TV Plus beat there. And uh, it was a delight to wrap up my coverage of Succession with the great race leader. Um, also on post-show recaps, we did a lot of postseason coverage that is also wrapping up. So follow me on Twitter to keep up with all of that and definitely subscribe to post-show recaps. Awesome. Um, what have you got going on, Mari? Where can the people find you? Of course, the people can find me every week. Me and Mascot talking about the weird, wonderful, wacky world of wrestling over on the Wrestling Rehap Up podcast. Uh, Rob has a website. You can go to robhaswebsite.com slash wrestling feed in order to subscribe there. Of course, I'm also on Twitter at Mari Talks Too Much. That's two like the number two. And on Twitch at twitch.tv slash Mari Talks Too Much. Sarah, what about you? Where can the people find you? They can find me on Twitter at Sarah Carradine. Uh, here on Reality TV Rehap Ups, Mari and I talked about Married at First Sight, the uh, re- reunion part two, with our perfect matches, Asia and Jason, and my wrestling alter ego, <laughs> Hilda Tintin Ventura, discussed the road to money in the bank on the wrestling rehab up with Mari mm-hmm. and Matt. Uh, over on post show recaps I chatted about the newest season of Black Mirror with Grace Leader, second shout out to Grace Leader in this podcast next time on Crime Scene we're covering Burden of Proof with Toby Ball from Crime Writers On watch it on Max and send us your comments and questions thanks to Dr. Amanda Rabinowitz for joining us, Will from America for the theme music and the whole RHAP team behind the scenes until next time Case Case closed. closed.